Hey, David. How you doing? Oh, I am excited. We've got so much to talk about. I want to get straight into paleo. I don't want, I don't care if it's raining at your house or not, <laughs> or what the weather is. I'm in a nondescript place. It's actually totally neutral. I'm nowhere, man. Okay. I'm, a, I'm the nowhere man. Well, I am so deep into evolutionary biology and evolutionary developmental paleontology right now based on our guest. But before we get into it, Okay. You got um, did some you news? read about the grasshopper egg nest that was discovered just recently? <laughs> There's one in your backyard you're talking no, about? 26 million year old grasshopper eggs from the John Day fossil beds. Hey, I know that place. Yeah, because uh, our last guest, uh, Megan oh, Weatherall. Megan, yeah. yeah. She found all that stuff there and, and, and works in Oregon. And So what's the deal with grasshopper eggs, Dave, that are that old? They're in a position in this matrix that shows exactly how they were laid. And by the shape and the texture of these so beautifully preserved eggs, they knew it was grasshoppers. And okay. it is the first time that these below-ground egg pods produced by only two groups of insects, and these are grasshoppers and heel walkers. You ever heard of heel walkers? Heel? No, I haven't. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> they're also called that. gladiator bugs because when they walk, it looks mm, like, like they're that. walking on their heels, but they're not. So it's just an awesome find, and it uh, all the. Uh, but is there guys. something we can glean from this discovery that uh, grasshoppers and heel walkers or whatever were yeah, happy then the and not now known, or what? It's the oldest known insect eggs that were laid below ground and they're still in the position that they were laid in. Ah, so that behavior has been going on for At millions least, and millions of years. Yeah. 26. Yeah, that's it. MYA. Yeah. All right. Yeah, wait, well, was, that a, was that a boring factoid? It's okay. I'm like, and then what? Okay, well, the other, that's cool, Dave. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> this might just get in and it out. All right. No, 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 no. Okay, so hit me I have some more cool, paleo. Right. Yeah, I have a, a really cool thought. I, I was sitting here the other morning with my coffee, and I get up around 6, and the sun hasn't risen yet, and I watch the sky go from black to just a little bit of light, and over about an hour, it takes almost 40 minutes to start seeing some color. Then I have mm -hmm. a beautiful fiery sunrise. In that time, that 40 minutes to an hour, it just was a long time. And I started thinking about deep time. So I said, well, you know, evolution, we, we have a hard time grasping how an animal changes over time. But given the amount of time that we cannot fathom, it all makes sense. So I thought, well, how many sunrises has there been since the Cretaceous extinction event 66 okay. million years ago? Yeah. And uh, with a little Googling, it is over the span of 66 million years, Okay. there have been approximately 24 billion 106 million sunrises. That's that's pretty heavy. You know, I've 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 been teaching kids this last week. My my museum exhibit is closing tomorrow. One of the first things we do is we sit in front of the geologic time scale that I drew and yeah. I just start talking about deep time. How old how how you know the earth is four point five, six, seven billion years old. For you to start counting right now, and I tell the kids this, right. start counting now, 
And I'll see you in 32 years when you actually hit a billion, you know. What, and it takes take 32 you, years to count like one second per number? Just out loud 32 counting. 32 years one, to count to a billion. Yeah. That's a and lot then, of coffees. It's a lot of pieces. A lot of coffees. And it'll take you uh, 120, 120 years in, uh, to get to the age of the earth. Anyways, it's just deep, deep time. Does Wait a minute. That doesn't mind. seem so long. 120 years. <laughs> but on one, on one hand, it does. Well, yeah. Anyways, do you want to spend your life counting? But, yeah, but deep but, time will blow your mind. And actually, it's kind of cool. Uh, I was just thinking I love words and all that stuff. You were uh, sitting there in the gloaming in the crepuscular light. Gloaming is a, is a the, word describing. In the gloaming, the, the sort of nether world between night and day. Okay. Is that so it has gloaming. to do with sunrise or sunset. As it's slowly coming up, there's a period of time. It's right. the magic, the golden hour, too. Filmmakers like to film during sure. that time because everybody looks good as the sun comes up. But yeah. anyways, so that's very cool. Deep time does blow your mind. Yeah. And actually, if we go back, 375 60. yeah i was gonna say that yeah what a three, great segue three three i was i was taking it there first man <laughs> yeah 360 to 370 million years ago we are going to pinpoint our next guest who is uh, i wanted to go to 375 mya and our next guest which is, is what the franian uh era in the in the devonian is the devonian an epoch an era or an age the Devonian is a period. Okay, the Devonian is a period, and within the Devonian, it is, it is segmented into these uh, epochs: upper, middle, and lower. Upper, middle, and lower, and then there's stages or ages. Right. So we have like Devonian uh, epoch would be late middle or early epoch, and then this yep. age would be yep. Fomanian, Fresnian, Gibbetian, Ifelian, yeah, Ifelian, yeah. But you know what we'll do? You can see all these weird ages and epochs on this colorful chart at PaleoNerds.com during yes, our next guest, Ted Deschler's Ted episode. Deschler from the uh, Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. He's a vertebrate paleontologist, but he spent a lot of time looking at vertebrate evolution and our fishy, fishapod ancestors. That's right. That's right. So let's yeah. get them on the... Uh... The old lobe fin phone. <laughs> lobe, lobe fin phone, man. Lobe fin phone. All right. And uh, dial away. Hey, Dave. Meet Ted Dashler. He's a vertebrate paleontologist and a newly retired curator and chair of vertebrate biology at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Wow, so good to see you again, Ted. Welcome to the show. Wonderful to connect with you again. Thanks so much for inviting me. And it's great to meet you. And I know you're a paleo nerd. I always ask all our guests, are, are you a paleo nerd? But I know you are. But you're the final guest in our triad of developmental oh, paleontologists on our show. We've talked to Neil Shubin. We've talked to John Long. But uh, and anyone who's gone head to head <laughs> with Stephen Colbert, you got my vote, dude. You held your <laughs> own. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> you held your own on that. Yeah. He tried to make you look like an idiot, and you held your own, and it was brilliant. Well, you know what? He 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 actually gave me lots of openings. <laughs> I think yeah. he was sympathetic. He just needed to be that guy. Yeah, you know? yeah. So but that was great. That was so part the of the shtick, is, right? The shtick was sort of to it, kind of put you on the spot. But anyways. David's yeah. got a very important question for you. Yeah. So yes. what does your love for all things paleo-nerdism mean to you? Oh, God. I just think uh, paleo-anything. Paleo means old, right? Yeah. So paleo-anything, paleontology, paleo-geography, all this kind of stuff. 
I just love being able to look back in time. You know, that's what it's all about. And when you can look back at the evolutionary history of life and and connect things, it helps you really put, you know, all of life into perspective. And when you can look back at the history of the planet and, you know, put that together and tell that story, it puts all that into perspective. So that's that's why I'm a paleo nerd. I just love old old things and telling stories like that. Well, Ted, what is your background? You're a Pennsylvania guy, and when did that paleo bug first bite you? Was, was it as a kid? Uh, not so much. You know, really? I, I wasn't a kid. So I grew up in the 60s, you know, 70s, and uh, I feel like paleontology was kind of uh, not as popular. And I, I loved earth sciences. I loved anything to do with rocks and minerals, especially. Um, grew up actually in New Jersey, right next oh, okay. door here, but, but I've spent most of my life here in Pennsylvania. I went to school in central Pennsylvania, Franklin and Marshall College, and professor there and the whole, the whole geology program there, which was my major, got me interested in history of life and history of the earth, as we said before. So um, kind of connecting those things, I kind of thought, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll go on and try to go to grad school and study fossils. And that's kind of the first time that I really put my hands on a lot of you know, paleo stuff was in college and then moving on to grad school and not before that. Huh. Doesn't Pennsylvania have middle Paleozoic rock right all around there? Exactly right. Well, even lower Paleozoic. So, but it doesn't have very recent stuff. It has very few things from the age of dinosaurs and, and even nothing basically from the age of mammals until we get to the Pleistocene and such. Well, that's that's kind of what I'm curious about is that, so you come to it late in life, but who is King Arthur Ritchie? You go, <laughs> what? What? What are you, you talking that's about? That's a name from the past, right? What is that? Goodness yeah. Me. No, this is a part of your past. You went out to California <laughs> yeah. to study sure mammals. Did. Can you explain sure did. King Arthur Ritchie and the Black Hawk Quarry? What? How does that figure Good into stuff. your life? Good stuff. Wow, you're really oh, that's pull, up you're... in San Francisco. Wait, that's up by Dan. It's out Danville, California. Yeah. When I went to Cal Berkeley to do a master's program out there, Um, sort of fishing around for what would be a good field project and might need some work. And of course, Cal Berkeley has had an amazing history of mammalian paleontology, you know, so you're particularly dealing with more recent time. And there was a site that was worked by King Arthur Ritchie and a crew back in the 30s Who's that as a, w, a jazz musician. Yeah, <laughs> it was a WPA project. Oh, you know, they were paying yeah. people to go out and do things of public interest. These guys weren't building a, you know, building trails or you know, building cabins out on the Pacific Coast Trail. They were digging fossils really? <laughs> out at a place called Blackhawk Ranch, and no one had really gone much further than what they did. They opened up a site. I guess someone had discovered it, and they opened it up. It's full of Miocene mammals, Miocene, about yeah. 10 million years old. Yep, horses, you know, um, the the antelacaprids, you know, things like pronghorns. Gomphotheres. Gomphotheres, absolutely. A bunch of different predators. And um, so I got to sort of re-expose the quarry that was there in the 30s and collect a lot more. Plus, there were collections at Cal. So that was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, Very field-based, sitting out in the California sun and, and digging fossils. It was awesome. 
Let's go back to Pennsylvania. Yeah, let's yeah, let's cut to uh, <laughs> to the Red Hill site, the Devonian Road Cut. Good. So yeah, good. Uh, yeah. I watched uh, one of your talks. And not only did you find tetraphods, but it's filled with everything. It's got trees yeah. and plants and bits of fish and bits of bone. Uh, describe what it is and the age. Yeah, very good. So as we said a little bit earlier, so much of Pennsylvania is underlain by Paleozoic rock. And if you go to the right parts of Pennsylvania, particularly the Pocono Plateau, which is kind of northeast, and the Allegheny Plateau, which is north central, you uh, get a lot of exposures of this thing called the Catskill Formation. It's red beds, siltstones, sandstones, ancient stream deposits, which is cool. It's exactly what, if you're going to start exploring the Devonian, and the Catskill is late Devonian in age, if you're going to start exploring late for late Devonian deposits with fishes and, you know, the transition to earliest limbed things, the hypothesis is that the, the non-marine, the stream systems, swamps and such, are going to be the habitats that you want to be able to explore. And so to do that, you got to find the rocks that formed in those habitats. And so Red Hill uh, was actually a road cut. It was made first back in the 50s or so, and uh, then they really improved it in the late 70s. Some material had been found there, but no one had really worked on it. And that was the first place where we, you know, my team, myself, and the team that I sort of put together as students and such, started to work in Pennsylvania. Did and you, it is north central. Did yeah. you go? Did you go refine that spot, or did you? Were you the guy that like yeah. found it again there, or how did that all? Yeah, come together? and it wasn't hard to find. It, it, it's a, it's a kilometer long road cut. It's just mm. that nobody, you know, it's on a rural highway up there, and nobody really had the interest to look at it. And honestly, here in Pennsylvania, you know, paleontology is, it's not quite like out west or something where, right. you know, there's people crawling all over the place you looking for things all the time. You got guys in cowboy hats out, out yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, but it had a ton of potential. So, yeah, so we actually used some old field notes to find a few sites in the vicinity out there. Um, actually, one of the first people to look out there is a classic name, and that's Alfred Romer. From from Dr. up at Harvard, yeah. Okay, all right. So Romer had gone through there, yeah. Tell the audience yeah. who Romer is. Sure. Well, many of us who started invert paleo in the like seventies and so would have would have had Romer's textbook, uh, Vertebrate Paleontology, oh. and Romer was just he kind of just synthesized everything that was known about vert paleo in in the middle twentieth century or so. Now. We've come a long way from Romer since yeah, that yeah. time. Yeah, and uh, because Romer wasn't using cladistics and wasn't building phylogenies based on that kind of quantitative uh, type uh, analyses. You know, he was sort of just telling stories. Well, this looks like this, and this is related to that, and it looks like that happened in this continent and over here. And so, uh, but very, very important person up at Harvard, the Romer Library. I mean, very, very important early paleontologist, not early paleontologist, but, but 20th century paleontologist. And so he had gone yeah. through out there, and a guy named Keith Thompson, who I actually worked with at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philly, um, uh, had gone through there, but nobody else. And so we found Red Hill, and almost, actually my second visit there, we found the only tetrapod bone known from anywhere in North America besides Greenland, 
at that time. Wow. And that really sort of set the stage. That's something we named Hynerpeton Bassetai. And it's a very distinctive shoulder, very different from the sort of finned precursors and much more like the limbed things that we start seeing in the latest Devonian and beyond. So that, that was that, like, that was the start of, that's, of things. That's what we call a tetrapod. So basically an early amphibian-ish creature. Uh, you know, it's wrong to call it an amphibian. Uh, it, it's essentially at the kind of, uh, it, it, we would call it a stem tetrapod. Stem Maybe tetrapod. that's better. Yeah, a stem tetrapod. It's along the lineage leading to the common ancestor of reptiles, amphibians, and, you know, eventually from the reptiles, right. you get mammals and birds and stuff. So, but yeah. that's pretty incredible that Hynerpeton is the first one from North America proper, North America. Mm -hmm. You guys found that from that shoulder blade, you were basically able to interpret that it was, and you found a bit of a jaw, too, of, of the beast, I think. Eventually, right? yep. Yep, At jaws Red Hill. and humerus, an yep. upper limb bone, yep, from Red Hill. This um, is before you went to Ellesmere Island in the Arctic, the Canadian yes. Arctic? Yes, in fact, it was definitely a progression. We kind of, uh, when I say yeah. we, it was myself. Um, I had started working with Neil Shubin when he was at University of Pennsylvania at the ah. time. And so we had these publications on this North American stuff, um, on Red Hill and other Catskill Formation sites. And just to recap, Neil Shubin yeah. was the previous guest on Paleo Nerds. He also is yes. the author of Your Inner Fish and, and of that three-part yes. PBS documentary, uh, your inner what your inner fish, your inner primate, and your inner, fish, yeah. well, your sure. inner financial it's, advisor. Yeah. I think was the third one. Yeah. <laughs> All under the your yeah. inner your fish inner title. whatever. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. To, just to yeah. clarify, I've always been curious about this. I come to the academy about in nineteen ninety eight. You're making these discoveries. Okay. I meet Neil yep. Shubin at the opening for my Dancing with the Fossil Record exhibit. I'm hanging out with you. I do a lot of stuff about lobe fins and all that, but I had no idea that. Did you, where did you earn your PhD? Working with Neil or? Yeah, yeah. we're the same age, but I was yeah. a late bloomer. I, I, okay. I had gotten my job after Cal. I went to Philly and got the job at the museum okay. there. And it was about 10 years later that I, um, working slowly toward a PhD for the last five years of that, that I got my degree and then could become more of a researcher type position at the academy. So so Neil was my research advisor. He was at University of Pennsylvania. I see. Okay. And so as I said, we're the same age, but you know, he was he he moved along much quicker than me. Uh but we're a good complement to one another. You yeah. know Neil yeah. is Neil is always looking for the next thing and, and I'm more content sitting still and just kind of working the details. Um yeah, in a big scale and a small scale. And Neil is some such a developmental evolutionary biologist but I bring sort of more of the geological side to, to those sorts of studies. I get um, it. Okay. And the fieldwork piece. Which leads me to that question. Are you a developmental paleontologist or a developmental biologist paleontologist or an evolutionary developmental <laughs> paleontologist? Yeah, I, 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 you know, Dave, I don't even know really what all those mean. I, I do not study <laughs> development. I do not study okay. the genetic basis for evolutionary, you know, anatomical change, I would say I am a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fairly classical paleontologist in the sense that um, I decide where to go and what the rocks mean, what they look like, how do we interpret, how do we find them, what environments do those rocks represent, 
Um, and then we find fossils and we study the anatomy, skeletal anatomy. Right, but you're associated with these transitional animals from, you know, fish to yeah. tetrapods. I mean, that's kind of well, your that's main... That's a very interesting one. But I, I love all of it. We find right, a yeah, lot I of see. different critters in the late Devonian, uh, from, from the armored things to acanthodians to, to sharks and early ray fins. Um, yeah, we get so much diversity that, that, and I think that tells part of the story. The diversity right. isn't just like, hey, here's a critter, we're going to name it. Wow, great. No, we can tell the story of what environment did it live in? What lived with it? What were the evolutionary pressures that may have, um, you know, driven certain adaptations that we see sure. in the fossil record that later, and this is the thing about the fin to limb transition, later, you know, during the time, those were just weird fins, if you want to call it that. But eventually, those structures that were being used in aquatic settings became the tools that would allow animals to come onto land. So it's that whole exaptation, the idea that evolution works by tinkering with previously existing structures. For our listeners, could you describe just very simply and quickly the transition from finned fishes to lobes sure. to big bone, two bones, and lots of yeah. bones? One, sure. two, Absolutely. lots of. That's the yeah. upper so, arm so and the hand, yeah. If we, if we step back and we think about things we call fishes, right? Although we are fishes, so let's not, let's not you okay. know, I'm going to try to use this I in win. a colloquial way. All right. Yeah, well, we are absolutely fishes. We are just very modified fishes. So let's talk about bony fishes, okay. which include, uh, bony fishes include the lobe fin side and the ray fin side. Ray fin side is everything that you go fishing for, for the most part, and we eat and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't include sharks. Those are something else completely. Yeah. But um, the, the ray fin fishes are things that, like, if we were to use the word well, fishes, I think they belong kind of as things we might call fishes. The lobe fin side, we shouldn't call, we should either not call them fishes or we need to call ourselves fishes as well. But anyway, lobe That's fins. the point yeah. that I agree with is that yeah. we are within that group, but go ahead. Yes, we are absolutely within that group. So on that lobe fin side. What is the difference between ray fin and lobe fins? Numerous differences, but the place where it really shows is in those fins themselves, the, the paired fins, pectoral in the uh, up front and pelvic toward the rear. Now, they also have median fins. So they're four-wheel drive, as you like to say, rather than two-wheel drive. They have, well, they have four fins, but so does, you know, so does a trout, right? Okay. A, a trout still has those pectoral and pelvic fins Got along it. with the, the midline fins and stuff. Got it. Okay. So here's a happy lobe fin plugging away, fully aquatic. But what's different about the basic structure of a lobe fin fin is that it's muscular within it, right? It's It's got musculature that attaches to bone. Those bones are one bone, two bones, lots of bones, then radials moving out. So, right. so they, they just have a structure fully living in an aquatic setting, which is in your limb, Dave. Right. I mean, it's in it's in your limbs. So... Those lobe fins diversified and tried different, you know, the different ecological settings. And the reason the Devonian was so amazing was there was a new opportunity. And that opportunity was freshwater streams and swampy habitats. 
and those were new because plants had just made that migration onto land and around the edges of streams okay. and ponds. Silurian and plants were the uh, yeah. yeah, plants were the basis of a food chain, and they so invertebrates lived in those leaf litter, and it fell into streams, and some animals ate the leaf litter, and some animals ate the invertebrates. And you started a food chain and the lobe fins that could exist in those shallow, swampy, freshwater habitats and some of them developing better and better ways of using those funky appendages under their body more to move on the bottom into shallow water. Those are our ancestors. Right. Yet they were, they were doing all kinds of things, these lobe fins, but that lineage that was specializing there, those are the ancestors of all limb vertebrates. Right. Did the lobe fins radiate from ray fins? Mm, good question. Or are they from the uh, old, it, it, uh, the uh, agnathian? Well, sure, everything kind of goes back to agnathans and what we call placoderms. Right. But I tell you what, that part of the tree is complex without a one, without a lot of good data. Well, where did the lobe fins come from? Were they uh, evolutionary friends of the raven? Yeah, well, no, it doesn't have to be a ladder, Dave. It's not a ladder at all. It's okay. like different groups are diverse. So so the things we used to call placoderms, yep. and if your listeners could, 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 could see me, I'm using air quotes because yeah. placoderms is not a natural it's group. It's a messy group. Yeah. But there are now things that are found with placoderm-like features that also have raven-like features. Right. And lobe fin like features so there's just a diversity of things at that time so here we are talking like silurian so pre-devonian into the early devonian there's really interesting it's not something that i've ever studied but and i tell you what there's a ton to learn i mean if i was yeah, starting a but, new career i might say i want to look for silurian vertebrate late silurian vertebrates because that's going to give us a clue on the origin of some of these bony fish bony right. fish groups. So that's where we are. It's, I can't answer your question exactly, Dave, right. but it's not as simple as this begot, this begot. Right. Sure. sure. But that's, yeah. that's what I, you know, I just want to emphasize, I, I think you explained it beautifully, Ted, just that whole transition, that new opportunity that these lobe fins began to capitalize on and move into these realms. They are not only our ancestors, they are all land-dwelling vertebrates uh, ancestors. So we Absolutely. lump all those in. So all of them, your your amphibians, your reptiles, your birds, your mammals, all of us are descendants. We are basically those modified lobe-finned fish. So we belong to that group. Very but much. There's a lot of diversity in the Devonian. And you were talking earlier about your, your collaboration, your uh, working with uh, Neil. You guys are getting so inspired. Who was it that began to look at the maps in the world and where was the perfect Devonian spots that you wanted to go to? Who decided, how did you collectively come to go to Ellesmere? And then Antarctica. Yeah, good, very good. That's, that's part of the fun of it, and that's what makes collaboration and everything, you know, like encouraging each other. So Neil and I would, would hang out, and we were in my office over at the Academy of Natural Sciences talking about, like, hey, where else would there be good Devonian rock? We know this Catskill Formation here in Pennsylvania pretty well. Let's look for some more spots. And I actually opened up a textbook that I used in my historical geology class at Franklin and Marshall College in like oh, yeah? what, 1979 or something. And it showed a map of Devonian paleogeography. So what, what did the North American continent look like? Where were the stream systems? Where were the swamps? Where were the mountain ranges? Um, 
And um, it showed that there were deposits of stream systems up in the Canadian Arctic. And so we, um, we then went to the literature and looked up a couple of references, particularly a, uh, a, a geologist by the name of Ashton Embry. We've since named a species for Ashton Embry since he was Sounds, so important in this I process. I love that, Ashton yeah. Embry, yeah. yes. <laughs> so we... Um, we learned what we could, and then we kind of took the jump. And uh, Ashton had told us, look, yeah, we look at the rocks. Yes, it's good non-marine stream systems. It's pretty well exposed up there. We looked at pictures with him, and he said, and sometimes we see fish scrap. That was as far <laughs> as he said. As a, as a stratigrapher, which was his job, they, they would log in the rocks and everything. If they see a piece of, of fish bone laying on the ground, they'd say, oh, there's fish scrap. Oh, fish bone, yeah. All so right. guess what? Yeah. We, we, we live for fish scrap, right? That's <laughs> so so um, Neil and I just, we, we found the funding, and we did an expedition beginning in 1999, and we've done like seven or eight other ones up there, all across Ellesmere Island, even further to the west, all the way out to Melville Island. And... Um, that's how we, you know, started that work. And it was very much, hey, you know, after the first year, we didn't find much. Should we do it again? Well, yeah, let's do it again. And it really took the at least, like, till the, at least the end of the second year before we knew we were finding worthwhile stuff. And then wow. we got more funding, et cetera. Yeah. When, when you found Tiktaalik, I saw the pictures mm -hmm. of the outcrop and that little canyon where you guys camped and where you found it. To what extent did you have to traverse all of Ellesmere in order to come to that one spot? Is Devonian shale and mud mudstone throughout all of Ellesmere, or is it in that tiny little canyon? Good, very good point. Um, well, both are sort of true. Yes, there is a lot of Devonian rock up there. Luckily, people like Ashton Embry had done the geological maps, which showed where, where the fish scrap was. Yep. <laughs> We, we used aerial photos to decide, like, okay, well, this valley has the steepest sides and the most rock outcrops, so let's go there. It would be productive to put a camp. Like, we, we would really, we'd get out these maps and we'd say, you know, we didn't know what, what the reality would actually be once we were on the ground. Like, how wet, how harsh, how many polar bears, what's this area going to be like? But we were just looking down on a piece of paper and saying, if we camp here and we can walk in any given day, you know, six miles out and six miles back surveying the rock, how how much rock can we see? And so we would choose our camps based on areas where we could see the most rock of Devonian age. And we knew it was going to be the right kind of Devonian rock. Now, we have walked huge areas. And Dave, to your point, once we set ourselves at that camp and we have this radius around us sure. of six miles out that we want to look at, we walk and walk, and most days you, you walk and you're looking down most of the time. You're looking at rock exposures. You're finding bits and pieces, but nothing very good. But that you never know the next boulder you walk around or the next crest sure. ridge line you crest over could be the best thing you've ever found in your life. So it just keeps you going. Yeah. And even when you do find an amazing site, like the one that produced Tiktaalik Rosé, you're not sure that it's going to be amazing until you do the work, until you really start to excavate more there and stuff. So it is a very time-consuming, patience-requiring sort of process to, uh, to work these sites. The dorsal part of the jaw 
was exposed, or the ventral part of the jaw was exposed. Ventral part of the jaw yeah, was exposed. And, and then you did not do any more excavation. You just took that whole rock, and then you didn't know what you had till you got back to the lab? No, 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 you couldn't. You can't. Because Tiktaalik is, is a, it's a holotype. Um, well, the thing is, we have numerous individuals now, okay. but the best one, the one that you always see images of, the one that, you know, models have been built from, artists tend to recreate and stuff, is the holotype. Right. It is NUFV, Nunavut Fossil Vertebrate <laughs> 108, <laughs> yeah. the catalog system up there. Easy for you to remember. We have several, yeah, that's the one. We have a bunch of other, well, I should say like three more complete skull materials, amazingly complete with like branchials, the breathing apparatus and wow. all this sort of stuff with it. Well, we have numerous fins and, and lungs, right? You have proof it has gills and lungs. Yeah, both. Yeah. We have numerous fins, partial fins, single fin elements, numerous lower jaws. Lower jaws are very durable objects. And at this site that produced Tiktaalik, our, our, our model for how the site formed was that it was a, a flooding event that kind of created a debris flow. Perhaps oh. the, a, a levee kind of opened up and all of this slurry of mud and dead or live fish, but also parts of other ones. I said fish, I should just say vertebrates, um, came washing out there with it. And they all got buried rather quickly because we find skulls that are like vertical, really? some that are flat. We find, like I said, a diversity as well, but all in this one like 18-inch thick layer that is okay. just a bonanza of a layer. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Guys, you're talking about this. You're searching. You guys are going on a different direction, walking for miles. You finally found like the glory hole, and you started working the one area and the, the digging. And there's yes. one layer is producing all of this. Yes. No. And all of our time, all of our our seven or eight field seasons in Nunavut. We basically have, you know, count them on one hand, you know, four or five glory holes, as you call them, Ray. You know, sites where we could actually excavate and find either articulated or at least very well-preserved bony elements. There's only one site that produced tectolic material like that. We have a piece of jaw from another site that's about the same age, from the same formation of tectolic. But that one, those conditions at that one site you know, we were just lucky to come at it at the right time. Yeah. That's beautiful. So if you, you kind of have this whole little ecosystem there, right? It preserved in the layer. Well, an event. It's it was sort an of event. an event. Okay. And it sampled an ecosystem, yes. Sampled an ecosystem. I'm just curious, who's eating who? What's yeah, eating what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, what's yeah, in there? What's in there? Tell me what's in that fishing hole. What else can I catch? Well, it's actually very predator heavy, which is interesting. And the other part of it is, Ray, you know this, that... that not everything gets preserved. Everything from the ecosystem is going to get preserved. We only have vertebrates. We know nothing about the hmm. plants or the invertebrates that might be I at see. that site. Other right. sites sometimes oh, there's, no get plants? Some there's no plants. There's no plants or worms. No or... plants at that site. Like Red Hill is full of plants. Oh, um, right. But of course, not, none of these, none of these um, uh, lobe fin fishes were plant eaters at the time. But anyway, to the to the Tiktaalik site. So Tiktaalik rose, believe it or not, is one of the fairly common animals there. The other common oh. one is something called Laconathus embryi. Actually, it's the thing we named for Ashton Embry. Laconathus embryi is this wide-headed, probably 
sit and wait predator on the bottom. It looks Ray, you know your fishes like is is it a frog one of the what are, what's the wide head with big teeth and it just kind of sits and waits for yeah, things to the, swim a, by. A monk yeah. a monkfish. A monkfish. There we go. You know? There yeah. we go. Something like that. Um and we beautiful skull material of that. We have a Eusthenateron, a new species that's big, probably like a seven or eight foot Eusthenateron. We named that for Ferris Jenkins. So that's Eusthenateron Jenkins eye. Wow. That's from the same site as Tiktaalik. I'm looking and at only... a uh, fin of that, uh, one of your uh, diagrams from Sarepterus oh, to yeah. Acanthostega. Yeah. That, that's going to be on the, the limbed animal side of this. Yeah. So, And by the way, this stuff... No limbed animals right. in the in the Nunavut sites, but that's earlier in the it's early in the late Devonian rather than late so in the late Devonian. So is lobed finned. Yeah, it's absolutely lobed finned. But he's and not it a is, limbed it, animal. She he she. Well, we would call it a well. Okay, so when does a fin become a limb? Right? You you might we might debate that right the here. Campestega so is of, a limb, right? If you want to call it that, <laughs> I'm serious. It's serious. What human beings are trying to make discrete categories out of what nature right. is creating yeah. as a as a, everything in between, right? Sure. So when does a fin become a limb? We have a definition that we use for practicality, and it's essentially when those fin rays are lost. You know. You, you go, you catch a fish, and you always say, well, watch out for those fin rays, yeah. those rods that are within the skin of the fin. Right. Lobe fins and ray fin fish all have those until you get to those more derived lobe fins, the more advanced ones, where they lose those. And when they lose those rods of bone within the skin of the fin, not the internal bones, but the ones within the skin, we call them lepidotrichia, when they lose those... That's when we colloquially would say that is now a tetrapod. And which animal is but that? But that's so arbitrary because yeah. we're going to find a fossil sure. someday that has a little bit of those, but not yeah. too much. And we're going <laughs> to, you know, it's really going to be a uh, Tiktaalik still has those fin rays, right. yet has an amazing, they're pretty short and stout, and has an amazingly well, well preserved, you know, internal skeleton, which you and I would say, well, that's a limb. I mean, gosh, and it is a lot like things like Acanthostega or something, but it still has the fin rays. Well, what's the so name of the first is, fossil that has no more ray ray spines? Well, unfortunately, not all of the kind of candidates for that, Acanthostega, Ventostega, Ichthyostega, all those, Hynerpeton, we don't have the fin rays to... to Preserved. We only oh, have like a humerus right. or a shoulder girdle and things. So, so that's you missing from the fossil it. record. It could be. Yeah, you uh, can uh, debate it, but we can see the things that are associated with things with fin rays and things that are associated sure. with things without fin rays. And so we can estimate. But honestly, so all of those that I just named, all those stegas, are essentially late latest Devonian. So we're talking like 365 million years ago. Pennsylvania, Greenland, the stuff, the, the Ventostega over in the um, the Baltics. So, Tiktaalik is about 375 million, so that's older. And right. the, the question is, like, so that last, and I would, I would say give it plenty of room on either side, plus or minus 5 million years. It's that window of time from, like, let's say 380 to about 360 million years ago that there was all of this experimentation with fins and things you do with fins and 
and, and fins that were becoming more limb-like and all that sort of stuff going on. So we can't expect to be able to draw a diagram that shows all of that diversity and exactly what led to what. But right. we know that there's that kind of range of anatomical change going on at the time. And we know the results. So fascinating. I remember when I we were talking about Romer earlier, the story I grew up with uh, that Romer told in his textbook was that Eustonopteron crawled and it's it's obviously an open ocean fish you know with a fork mm -hmm. tail and all that like it crawled from uh drying up water hole to water hole and that's how we got limbs that's the story he was telling mm -hmm. but now this fascinating thing all this science has come in now getting us closer and closer to that transition and we had john long on talking about elpistostege does that bump tectolic is that older or younger than tectolic it's it's actually older than Tiktaalik. Oh. Um, yeah, it's older. It's, um, well, actually, I think they put they, that Escumenac formation they put at the, they often put at the Gavetian Franian boundary. Those are stages are in the late, in the late Devonian. Devonian. Correct. Whereas uh, Tiktaalik is solidly in the Franian. So it's, it's, so Elpistostege is probably a little older. But just because it's older, it doesn't mean it's more primitive or anything. It, Time uh, uh, phylogeny does not need to correspond with time. Right. It's nice right, when right, it right, does. Right. Yeah, yeah. But um, it also supposedly, well, it does. Uh, the evidence is there that it's got, it's already got the fingers happening. Yeah, Ray, I want you to look at exactly how they come up with that. Okay. <laughs> here's uh, where, okay. We here's have some where to Dave and you're, ah. to, to, here, here's where, you know, you can get into the details and nobody can really definitively right. say this. And by the way, this isn't a, like a, a mind, mine's better than yours, mine's yeah. bigger than yours, <laughs> mine's older than yours kind of thing. It clearly, and, and our like our own cladistic phylogenetic analysis shows Elpistostegi and Tiktaalik as, as belonging to a group that is the sister group of tetrapods. So okay. neither is closer to tetrapods. Okay, all right, I'll now, get that. I think it might be in the Elpistostegi paper they use a character which suggests that they do find a true um, digit phalange within the fin. And it's really, what do you call these things and how do you define a phalange? Sure. And we were being conservative in calling them radials and tiktaalik. So look, there, there's no right answer. The, the, the best answer is let's just keep finding fossils and filling in this information. Yeah. And hey, you guys know this. The only way to answer these questions if Every organism that ever lived on the surface of the earth, if we could see it, preserve it, see it as a fossil, whatever, we, we're going to know a fraction of a percent of everything that ever right. lived. So how Absolutely. can we really yeah. expect to, to yeah. refine the details yeah. too much? Let's not quibble over those details which are almost outside of the resolution of the fossil record. And let's just like say, let's keep finding this cool stuff. Yours is cool. Ours is cool. Together, it's a community. <laughs> We're doing cool things. Amen, brother. And that's that's I think the right answer. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. This is what you can do when you get retired. <laughs> you can just be this way. You're like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> I have an end of Devonian question. What is the yeah 
What is the event that marks the transition between the Devonian and the Carboniferous? What do the geologists say? Somewhere it's a boundary where lithology changes or they notice a change in the, the, the fauna, the animals. It could be invertebrates. It could be vertebrates. I don't know. But you know. don't know offhand what, what that is? No, but, but, but here in Pennsylvania, we've got good Devonian rock, the Catskill Formation. And that good Devonian rock grades into good Carboniferous rock. The, the Huntley Mountain Formation. And there's no, like, golden spike right. in there. Right. There's, no, there's no change right. in rock type. It, it, it's moved slowly through. So, again, what is the resolution of the record we are looking at? We are trying to put human constructs of black and white, Devonian and Carboniferous, fin and limb. We're right. trying to divide things into things that our little brains can take care of. But in reality, nature is just moving through constantly, you know, little changes, but but not these like black and white changes. Interesting. My question about this boundary, you just answered previously. <laughs> OK, <laughs> that there is no resolution, that the resolution is just ethereal, really. The resolution on being able to at any place on the earth, being able to say, here's the boundary or this boundary is sharp and I can recognize it here because I see those fossils change or I see the rocks change. Well, the KPG is pretty specific though in Montana. Well, in some places, yes, yeah. you've got the you've got that that clay layer, but um, you know, not everywhere by any means. So I guess we're just we're, we're quibbling over things that yeah. uh, are hard to define, yeah. We we quibble on this show. It's fun when we quibble, yeah. but uh, yeah. wonderful. But yeah, the Devonian I thought was marked by a series of events at the end that kind of <laughs> volcanic. But but before we beat that one into the ground, are there other locations that have the sweet Devonian rocks that you guys still want to go to? I know you went to oh, Antarctica. Interesting. interesting. Uh, yes. And uh, we have some nice Devonian rocks up here. I've tried to lure you up to Alaska. Yeah. But where, where are the spots? Hmm. That, Isn't there North Slope Devonian? Yeah, it's up in North Slope. There's some Devonian rocks in uh, western Alaska out there. Just And there's been some lungfish bits from the Devonian found there. Okay. But is there, is there, well, you want to go? Fish trap, yeah. What, what did you find in Antarctica with that group? Or is that still hush-hush? Right. So, so, so you're right, Ray. There's definitely, um, you know, you can look at places around the world. And Shubin and I have, have kind of, done this and cataloged it and I mean not cataloged it in our brains said yeah we could go there we can go there like like I mentioned uh, the Baltics Latvia and that kind of stuff good Devonian stream systems in fact that was next door to the Canadian Arctic back in the Devonian so we oh. get very similar faunas over there and it's similar type deposits too and East Greenland same idea it's a little later in time but it's quite similar to this whole northern continent fauna the the east greenland is more the age of the stuff here in pennsylvania you know and again i'm talking about that kind of 20 million year late devonian window in general here then there's australia and the kind of stuff john works on some oh, right, of it marine right. some of it non-marine um there's some stuff in south africa now there's old red sandstone in 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 uh uk that's um, right so so yes there's probably like there are spots around the globe and, and the ones that meet the criteria we're interested in, which is non-marine rocks, so formed by stream systems, um, from that late Devonian, particularly Franian and Fomenian stages. And then here's a, here's a criterion which is a thing. 
There's political reasons why we can't just say to the Danes, we're coming to work in Greenland. We can't say to the Latvians, we're coming to work in Latvia. You just can't do that, you know? Right. You can develop collaborations and, you know, you could, you could do it if you really wanted to, and a ton of people do. Not so much in the Devonian, but, you know, in other paleotypes. So, Antarctica. Yeah, Schubert, this was a, this was really, I gotta give Neil a lot of credit, because like I said, he's always looking for that next horizon. There's, there's literature, there's work. John Long is one of the people previously who had gone down and worked. Uh, these are Gavetian. These are closer in age to the, the Escumenac formation that Elpistostegi so is middle from. Devonian. I'm looking Late at middle the chart Devonian. right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And which, right. is a, which is an interesting time frame. I mentioned that we're always looking for like something a little more primitive or something a little more advanced or whatever. We thought, okay, maybe this... Um, Gavetian age deposits Aztec siltstone, they're called, exposed in the Transantarctic Mountains, a helicopter flight away from McMurdo Base, McMurdo Station down there. So we applied to the National Science Foundation and got funded to, to for them to support us to uh, train at that McMurdo Station and then for them to put us out at field sites that we had identified. And um, so that's what we did twice now, each each field oh, season was about wow. two months, two months long, but about two weeks going in was the training at McMurdo and waiting and, and acquiring the food and the supplies and putting it all together. They are really careful, which is good because, you know, scientists, I don't know, we're not all mountaineers. <laughs> we're not out there, you know, and it, and it is harsh. You, they don't want to come rescue you. you yeah, know? yeah. They, want, they yeah. want you to be trained and tested on the equipment and you know, know how to get out of a crevasse and all that kind of stuff. So we train a lot at McMurdo for about two weeks going in. Then they put us into the field. Then they, you know, we stay in touch, of course, and they'll move us if we wanted to move camp and rearrange it. And then they come get us and we come back to McMurdo and then organize and clean and do everything we need to do. Pack up our gear, pack up our fossils, which will come back on the supply ship that goes to McMurdo twice a year or once a year, I should say. Yeah, so our fossils came home across the Pacific to California and then trucked across country, yeah. So we've been twice, both areas were in the Transantarctic Mountains, but separated. It's really harsh, ugh. I mean, talk cold, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I can do cold, but this was, you know, this was on the order of, of 10 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit most of the time with wind. And you just get so sick of waking up and having to get dressed and putting on your cold <laughs> boots and putting on, oh, and peeing into a into a bottle and Ooh. you know this, you know it's like it's, do you have it's to pack out your urine? Thing. Yeah, you pack oh. out your urine. You pee into a bottle and then you have a big uh, fifty-five gallon barrel that you put it in oh, and right. it freezes. Um, and you're pooping into a can, right. like a, a ten gallon, uh, five gallon white bucket kind of thing. Yeah. All right. And that all comes back to. By the way, that goes to California too. Right. <laughs> Did you find anything? Did you find stuff? What'd you find? Yes. Found, Good stuff? found a lot of stuff, Ray, but nothing much on the 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 group. The, the way we think about this whole lineage leading toward tetrapods from through the lobefins, we call them tetrapodomorphs. Things that are kind of on that lineage, right? Okay. We found only a handful of things that were tetrapodomorph-ish. None of them sort of in the transition uh, that we know of anyway. Maybe somebody okay. will recognize something we didn't see. But nothing as much like Alpistostegi or Tiktaalik. Nothing as close as that to the transition. But of course, 
hey, you know, we're interested in, in other transitions within these tetrapodomorphs, the origin of, of maybe we could learn something about the, the loss of fins across the body or the changing of scale types or something. So everything is data. We particularly, Ray, you, you're fond of the air quotes placoderm guys. Oh, yeah. And, Great diversity of placoderms down there. Early sharks, a bunch of different shark teeth of all sorts oh, down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, so um, we haven't published anything yet. Honestly, there's no like uh, numbers, as you might call okay. them, meaning like nature papers or something like that. But um, good stuff. It's cataloged. It's curated at the Academy of Natural Sciences here in Philly. Uh, it will stay there. It'll be it'll be curated there. Um, I should mention all the material from Canada is curated at the Canadian Museum of Nature on behalf of the people of Nunavut. So it's sort of a separate collection of Nunavut fossils. But th that's important that repositories, you know, be in country or in this case, you know, Antarctica doesn't have like a single country that owns it or anything like right, that. Right, right. Now for two months, um, for two months, yeah, and yeah. How, how big was the team? And can you say what the funding is for two months? And how big well, the it's, team it's is? Well, it's all National Science Foundation. In fact, we don't even really know exactly. Um, kind of, there wasn't a number. They basically said, "Yes, we'll support your project. Come down to McMurdo." Oh, so we get to McMurdo, and actually they paid so you, for us to so get they to cover McMurdo because the they cover the food, they cover all the supplies and precisely the equipment from and New logistics. Zealand. You just you fly across on military aircraft that land you on the Ross right. Ice Shelf right there, and then they bus you up to McMurdo. And yeah, they have the food supplies that you pull from. They have the equipment. They give you a sleeping bag, which is warm, 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 best sleeping bag you ever had. <laughs> and so, and then they give you the, the expensive part is aviation. And they train you, and they feed you while you're there. Anyway, wow. so it's it's it it isn't it isn't. I mean, it's not rocket science. We're not we're not using big expensive equipment, but we are needing a lot of logistical support. Sure. And so they support all that, and it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. And then I always say, so thank cool. when I give lectures on this, I always say, thanks, folks, because it's tax dollars. And this would have been in February or, or January, the, the height of their summer? In January. We would usually leave in December, right. early December. We'd usually get into the field by the week before Christmas. We'd be in the field for Christmas, New Year's, into mid-January. And what latitude were you at? Um, I think our sites are oh, 78 degrees south, I think. Right. Yeah. So you're, um, yeah. So, okay. is that, or is that Nunavut North? I meant from um, the pole. I meant from the pole. Well, so we're about we're we're hundreds of miles from the pole, sure, of course, the pole, and that's all just ice once you yeah, get yeah. out there. So yeah. we're we're around the not the edges of the continent, but in in that whole Ross Inlet, Ross. Uh, ice I'm looking to go uh, yeah. iceberg and scuba diving uh, in Antarctica. Power to you, do yeah. it, man! <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. Don't climb those icebergs because they no. tip over. No, I've seen that video. Ted, you're newly retired. What's Ted going to do now? Oh, good question. <laughs> I'm still working it out. <laughs> newly is the key piece here. I retired in September of 23. However, we opened a, an exhibit at the Academy of Natural Sciences called Life onto Land, the Devonian, in November of 23. Wow, cool. so, so I worked a bunch on that, and it's really cool. Uh, anybody coming through Philly should should stop. It's got so much unique stuff, including original Tiktaalik stuff that we borrowed back from oh. 
Canadian Museum of Nature. So, so Ray, I'm still very much like plugged in at the museum. They're they're trying to keep away from me. I think I don't know if it's <laughs> if, if if I'm cantankerous. You retire, you become cantankerous, or if they're just respecting my space. I think it's the latter. <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, <laughs> I've really uh, valued our friendship over the years that we stayed in touch, and uh, I think you are a great science communicator. Ted, and oh, it's thank been, you for that. Uh, you too. Absolutely, man. I had no idea how important the Academy of Natural Sciences is in the history of, well, museums in our nation. It mm-hmm. is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, natural the, history museum. It is the yeah. yeah. Wait, this wasn't part of Jefferson, was it? Yeah. It's the oldest natural history, although there's one in Charleston that was established earlier, but they had to close during this little conflict called the Civil War oh, and yeah. stuff. Um, but the Academy in Philadelphia, we've stayed open since Oh, that's way. Was that the war that wasn't based on slavery? Yeah, that's right. It wasn't based on slavery. <laughs> okay. I just want to say that I really value going through the collections with you and actually being able to hold some of the mastodon bones that Jefferson had managed mm-hmm. to wow. collect and wow. ended up in your collection. You know, the mm-hmm. megalonyx claw that's there. What's and that? Was that? Oh, is that a giant sloth? Well, it's that's a giant it. sloth. The right. giant sloth that he thought was a giant cat, but right. Jefferson was like a paleo nut himself, which we could have him on the show. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Who, Thomas but Jefferson? Also, yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to have him on the show? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to have him on the show. Speaking was, of time just, travel, Ray. Just segue, but you know, it's such mm-hmm. a, an incredible museum, such deep history. But with that, let me transition to time travel, okay? Time travel, Ted. If you could go back in time, what exciting epoch, what perfect period, what exquisite yeah. era, which one would you want to go to and what precisely would you want to see? Boy, oh boy. And you, I, you can't know, say Devonian. <laughs> he can say it, Dave, I if know. he wants to. Yeah. We know. always have this fight. I know. But over to us, you. Us, us paleo nerds ask that question of ourselves and others a lot, I think. Okay. And I'm not sure. When I ask it of myself, I, I do think, sorry, Dave, I think the Devonian would be fascinating because I would have a better, like, overall context for like where we were in the the lineages biologically and geologically i'd i'd know oh cool i could walk that way and i'll get to scotland without even crossing an ocean you know i just gotta walk across the mountains anyway so i think you know personally i think it would be an amazing time frame and when you look back at the last 500 million years of history which is when all the cool stuff happened in terms of biology um the Devonian was very consequential. I mean, oh, yeah. if, if it weren't for some of those events of the Devonian, life could be restricted still to the oceans on, on Earth. Earth could be this, like, you know, blue oceans and everything else not blue, you know, brown and white because there was no plants on land <laughs> yeah. or whatever it might be. The other thing, Ray, I mean, I don't want to go to the... I think I would go some somewhere within the age of mammals... And it might be something like the Miocene, which is about 10 million years, because you're you're seeing the kind of end of or, or the transition between all the archaic forms. Yet you would see a bunch of things that looked familiar. You know, you'd oh, be right. seeing seeing plenty of horses and and rhinos and stuff like that. And and nothing strikes me as dangerous as during the age of dinosaurs. And so, if we needed to protect ourselves. 
the, the, the age of mammals would be a better time frame for that. So, you know, honestly, and, and as we've said, everything is just a continual process. Almost any, any time period would be fascinating, but those might be the ones that I would key into. Um, and cool. surprisingly or not, those are both times I know something about. So, so yeah. maybe that's why. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I only say that because we know you're going to say Devonian, but I just want to hear if there are other epochs yeah. or eras that uh, float your boat. Uh, but that's great. The, yeah, the Miocene. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Okay. So what I'd like to find out is uh, your contribution to the study of evolutionary biology. And, and, and you, I guess you are kind of, you study developmental paleontology. Okay. It's opened our eyes to life's history on Earth. And considering the now outdated and historical usage of the term missing link in paleontology oh. and its application to transitional fossils... Could you elaborate on why this term is now regarded as oversimplification in paleontology? Sure. And, and there's one quick way to, to fix the way we use that word, those two words. Missing links, add an S. Missing links. It, it is one of the missing links between finned and limbed animals. It is one of the missing links between Australopithecus and Homo. You know, it's just... You just have to realize that everything is a link. We are all links, you guys. We're yeah. links. We're moving from one generation to a next. We may have left genetic material into the next generation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so it's just it, it, what we've been talking about of these gradations between things and the, the, the 20 million years of time between something that you might think of as finned and something you might call limbed and the great diversity of everything between with all this experimentation and, and so forth. It's impossible to say that this was the most important time or the most important animal and this was the most important species. So this was the missing link. So my answer to the question is, yeah, I hate the word missing link, <laughs> but I love the that's word. That's why I asked. <laughs> we are working on missing links. Yeah. Okay. You know, so, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's brilliant, Ted. Just add an S okay. and you're okay. Yeah. All okay. Right. Just add an S. That's great. Just add an S. Wow. I won't okay. complain if I hear you say it with an S. I, I'd complain <laughs> if you didn't. Okay. Yeah. I'll make sure to enunciate links. Yeah. And uh, my son goes to school in New York, and I now have have a reason to come to Philly. I've got to see. Please, yeah. David. Absolutely. I've got to see. Jump through your collections. And any friend of Ray's is a friend of mine. And you know, it's funny. The entire episode we've been talking about Ray Finns and Finn Rays, right? <laughs> well, Ray has a new book out called The Finn Art of Ray Troll. And so every time I hear Finn, oh, Ray, I Ray, Finn, it. I keep thinking about this book that you're going to give me for free, Ray. Oh, uh, you mean Spawn to Die, <laughs> The Finn Art of Ray Troll? Yeah. He shamelessly plugged his new book. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to sign it for me? I might, Dave. Okay. I'm actually going to bring it to your house in February. Okay. So Fantastic. right around Valentine's Day, Dave. All right. So that so, was a plug. I think I have the entire troll library, so I'm going to have to acquire it. you got to get it. Yeah. Amazon will have it, right? Yeah. Get it from my little web store, will you, so I can oh, sign it, gotcha. Ted. Gosh. Good call. Support Thank the you, family. Ray. So, Ted, what an honor and what a thrill uh, just to have you here on the show and to reconnect with you. I really appreciate you coming on uh, Paleo Nerds. And, uh, yeah. And I'm sure you're going to stay busy doing all kinds of cool things in your retirement, man. 
No doubt, so, Ray. And it's so nice to be able to do this with you guys and uh, great connections. And um, I hope I'll see you again, Ray, before too long. But it's, it's just great to have another layer after, you know, talking to John Long and talking to Neil Shubin yeah. and your perspective. Yeah. I think my take from all of this is that everything is in transition and you can't really put a definitive stamp on almost anything when it comes to studying the past. And, and I like how fluid that feels. Good. I, if there's one message that might come through to listeners, that's that's a good one. Yeah. Life life is a verb, man. It's a verb. <laughs> and, you know, you can't evolve unless you have L-O-V-E, right? You have got to use go. L-O-V-E. And on that note. Can't spell it. Anyways. <laughs> Thanks, Ted. Right. Uh, it's been an honor. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you, guys. See ya. Well, that was fun. That was great. We dove into uh, tetrapod and words like Elpistus stegalians and tetrapodomorphs. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> what? I said it wrong? Well, Elpistostegians, I think, or Stegidae, whatever. It's all yeah. good, Dave. It's all good, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I... I you know, I, I, we discuss these things, and it's like, well, Ray, here's another lobe fin fish guy. But as I like to say, when you work with Ray Troll, you, you get Ray Troll and all these crazy things that I've been interested in over who? the years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who? So, but it was great to reconnect. I literally reconnected with him after at least 10 years and sure. uh, here on the show. And I have been passionately interested in this transition, you know, as you know, for yeah. all these years. But he was a big part of, just blowing my mind uh, back in 98 when I had my show there. Uh, and I stepped into that world just before he and Neil went off to Ellesmere Island. That's so cool. And when Tiktaalik came out, uh, when they published the paper, he started letting me know ahead of it because he knew that I was passionate about it. So I was following it before it was published. And oh, cool. I had the T-shirt <laughs> kind of ready. He referred right. to it. So Embrace Your Inner Fish, that was ready. But I was also doing all these drawings. They weren't part of the press release, but I kept, he basically, because, you know, you knew me, I had some art that was all about TikTok. Sure. Embrace Your Inner Fish, is that was that coined by Neil Shubin? Because that's the name of his TV series. Uh, no, Your Inner Fish. Right. He, his book was Your Inner Fish. But the idea of Your Inner Fish, is that a Neil Shubin thing or is that just collectively through all? I did a drawing at the Academy uh, that was called, and it was in my Planet Ocean book, The Fish. It sounds like a Ray Trollism. I did a drawing that was uh, The Fish Within. Oh, right. And then okay. that was in yeah, my yeah. Planet Ocean book. Sure, so at about the sure. same time, we're all playing with the same yeah, yeah. same thing. But also this idea really was rippling through the scientific community and yeah, all that. It's convergent. It was of the times, but the idea that really, we, with cladistics too, that we, we are really fish. We belong to this group and that we could begin to refer to ourselves as fish, lobe-fin fish. And as we were early yeah. on in our episode now, we talked about that once again. I won't let it go now but okay. we've been there <laughs> in in one sentence or less describe what cladistics are again please well clades cl clades it's a much more mathematical and we can have an expert on at some point to talk about this a mathematical Shh. approach yeah, go on. with characteristics and lumping them together and doing the math of characteristics that are similar so you're not just like this looks like something this 
these limbs look like so this. So you have serious you data points. Serious data points that you right. can keep running and running and running. You have all these characteristics, and they all bracket. And so these brackets, and there's different ways okay. to kind of interpret the brackets, but it's it's much more analytical So it's approach. a mathematical way of comparative anatomy or right. comparative biology. And so this idea, and like I said, it's maybe worth, uh, I know a few people that we could kind of, talk this yeah, through. Yeah, I'd be them. interesting as long as it doesn't end up being dry and we have an animated guest talking about that well, stuff because that could get really dense. I think we have a way of bringing the fun, Dave. I hope so. You know, we make it fun. Yeah, yeah. I have forgotten words like epistostega and, and, and canthostega and all these other tetrapods and, and stem and stem 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 tetrapods <laughs> stem tetrapods fishapods yeah, yeah all kinds of different ways after hearing it over the years and being a you know not a really a paleontologist as a profession it's all starting to seep in and make sense a bit more in my head well we started this podcast about four years ago we're 70 some episodes in. This is I'm episode 71. 71. Very proud of that. Yeah. And uh, we've made it this far. I'm going to say thank you for your valuable time today, Ray. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing this fantastic new book of yours. The, thank you. Thank uh, you. What is it? The Life and Times of uh, Teenage like, Ray Troll. What yeah, it it's called? all in there. Spawn to you die, the fin art Spawn of Ray Troll. Spawn to you die, the famous t-shirt. Yeah. Spawn to you die, the, the life. What is it? Uh, the Fin Art of the Ray Fin Troll. Art. See what I did there. Right. Up, 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 Available up. on www.trollart.com. That's right. Get the signed right copies now. there. So, uh, but, hey, you wait, know, how does a listener get a signed copy? Do you have to, is there a thing where you can ask for it or you pay yeah. extra for it or what? No, 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 you don't pay extra. You just go in there and fill out the comments at, you know, the, oh, okay. at the website, you know, and uh, right. I will write whatever you want, you know, other Fantastic. than an IOU. I don't want to do that. I'm already deep in debt. <laughs> but, you know, I'm signing off from a completely nondescript place. I'm not even going to say where I'm at. I'm just out in here in the void, man. Well, I'm still in Ojai, California, and a rain event is coming, and I'm going to be Ooh. happy about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can't avoid a void, can you? All right. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Did you say you're in a void just to say that horrible pun. Well, Is that why you're in a void today? Oh, I can't avoid it, Dave. I don't know. It's just a, it's a <laughs> circular right. thing. Oh, All off right. I go. You know what? Write me a check and I'll avoid it. I'll talk to you oh, later, Ray. Okay. Peace out, man. Okay. Later. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs>